In our reading of the Gospel text today, we read verses 21 through 24, and then skipped ahead to verse 35 and read through verse 43, the end of the chapter. Usually, verses 21 to 43 are read, and those are the texts that were given for this day. When Mark tells a story, he often uses a method called uh, chiasmus. You begin with something, and then you move to something else, and then you go back to what you began with the beginning and end, or like uh, bread around a sandwich. These frame the meat in the center, which is the heart of the story. In this case, it's the story of the woman who touches Jesus in the middle of a crowd, and Jesus has a brownout. He feels the power going out of him. Who touched me? he asks, which is a ridiculous question to the disciples because everyone is touching him. But this woman, desperate to be healed, touches him, and with that touch, her bleeding stops. She is healed. This story is an interruption between the beginning and the ending, so much so that the story of Jairus' daughter becomes almost a footnote, an afterthought to the story of the desperate woman who touches Jesus. This morning, we will skip over the story of the woman, take the center out of the sermon sandwich, and look at the bread at the beginning and the end. The interruption in the middle is essential to the rest of the story only insofar as it delays Jesus in the midst of his urgent journey to the house of Jairus, a delay in which the little girl dies. The purpose of Jesus' trip to Jairus' home has become pointless, or so it seems. She's dead, all because of an interruption. Let's look at that story again. Jesus had just come back from his journey to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We talked about that last week. There he had cleansed a demoniac who lived among the tombs. He cleansed an outsider an outcast, and the man's demons went into a herd of pigs who ran over a cliff, and the local pig farmers begged Jesus to get lost, to get back into his boat and go back where he came from because he was going to drive them out of business. No sooner did Jesus and his disciples get back to Galilee than they were inundated with people surrounded by a big crowd, all of them pressing to get a look, some to get a blessing, some to get healed. And in the midst of this commotion, 
the leader of the local synagogue, desperate because his daughter was near death, pushes through the crowd, falls onto his knees, and begs Jesus to come with him before it's too late. There is an urgency here in this story. Mark, you will remember, uses two words over and over again in his gospel. And immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Mark's gospel in the Greek is written in the historic present. We've talked about this in my class. Read in the historic present, everything is happening now. The beginning of the story, then, read in the historic present, sounds something like this. Jesus crosses back to the other side, and a big crowd waits for him. He has his back to the sea. The leader of the synagogue, Jairus, comes to him, and when he sees Jesus, he falls on his feet, and he begs him. More to the point, he is begging him. Over and over, my daughter is dying right now. There's no time to lose. Come with me now. Lay your hands on her now, and she will be made well. She will live. And immediately, Jesus goes with him. Or in the urgency of the historic present tense in the Greek, he is going with him. Do you hear that? Do you hear the present tense? This is happening now. He is going. And a large crowd is following him. They are pushing and they are shoving and they are reaching. And then the action stops. A woman touches Jesus. He stops. Jairus watches helplessly. The clock is ticking. There is no time to stop. But Jesus stops. And we hang on every moment. And in these moments, these precious moments, as Jesus stops and asks, who is touching me? The little girl dies. Before Jairus and Jesus set out again, word comes from someone at the house. Too late. She is dead. Don't bother. There's nothing the rabbi can do now. Nothing. Jesus hears this and he says to Jairus, speaking in the present tense of hope, not in the past tense of death, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Believe against the odds. Believe against what you have heard. Believe now. Trust me. Now. This story isn't over, Jesus might have said. Time has not run out. My time never runs out. With me, there are no endings, only beginnings. Jesus' friends have already 
gone to what might have been, but Jesus brings Jairus back to what is and what will be. Just trust me. That's all you have to do. Don't be afraid. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, his inner circle, his most trusted disciples. The rest of his disciples held the crowd back, I imagine. And when Jesus and Jairus and Peter and James and John get to the house, the people there are beside themselves with grief, weeping uncontrollably at the horrible reality of death of this young girl, about what might have been and what now will never be. There is, in this moment in the story, something similar but much more immediate than the moment in John's Gospel, chapter 11, when Jesus arrives at Bethany after the death of Lazarus, and Martha tells him, if only you would come sooner, you could have kept my brother from dying. But it's already too late. What might have been, now will never be. Robert Farrar Capon says that Jesus never met a corpse he didn't raise. This story is no exception. Why are you weeping? He asks those who have just seen this little girl draw her last breath. She is not dead. She is sleeping. And it's interesting. Their, their grief turns to incredulous, mocking laughter. You're nuts, Rabbi. Don't mess with us. We saw her die. There's no time for denial, Rabbi. She's dead. She's already dead. The last thing those who are grieving the death of a child need to hear are the empty metaphors of the denial of death. She's sleeping. Well-intended people say stupid things to grieving people all the time. You've heard them. I've said them. She's in a better place. God needed her more than us. Thomas Lynch, a poet and an undertaker, tells the story of a grieving mother in the immediate aftermath of the death of her daughter. An inept and well-intended deacon from the woman's church placed his hand on her shoulder, trying to offer her some comfort amidst the raw, inescapable reality of death. Don't worry, he said. That's not her. It's a shell. The woman, Lynch says, wheeled around and punched him in the face and decked him, knocked him flat. Until I tell you differently, she said to him, it isn't a shell. She's my daughter. Asserting the right of those blindsided by death against those, Lynch said, who are uncomfortable with the fresh 
grief of others. Here, though, Jesus is denying nothing. He is staring death in the face. He's not throwing out comforting metaphors. He says against the odds, she is sleeping, knowing full well that she is dead. And there is no way around death for any of us. Only a way through it. Robert Capon, again in his Parables of Grace, reminds us the world cannot be saved by living. And there are two simple reasons why. The first is we don't live well enough to do the job. The second is more profound. The world's deepest problem is not badness as opposed to goodness, but it is sin. Life, therefore, he says, for all its goodness, cannot save. I am sorry to disappoint you, he, he, he says, but we are back at death. Faith in Jesus' death as the only reliable guide. When I talk about being dead, Capon says, I have in mind not the absence of interest in the dance of living, but the absence of clutching at our partners in the dance. Jesus did not count his life, Capon reminds us, either human or divine, a thing to be grasped at. He was open at all times to what God put in his hand and remained faithful in that openness until death, at which point God, by the power of the resurrection, put the whole world in his hand. Jesus clears the room except for the girl's parents and a few family friends and his disciples. And in the stillness of the room, Jesus takes the girl's hand and he says simply, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. That's it, nothing else get up. And as Mark tells the story, she opens her eyes, and immediately the girl gets up and walks around. This dead 12-year-old gets up. What are you all staring at? She may have asked, getting up from her deathbed as if nothing remarkable or unusual had happened. Her family is stunned. Tell no one, Jesus says, and give her something to eat. Maybe some bread and wine. The dead don't eat bread and wine. Only those who are alive, only those who are raised from death to life. And dying can make you really, really hungry. Today, we bless the bread and the cup. We share it together. We who have died, we who have been raised 
from sin and death to a new life in Christ. And today, Jesus says to us, says to you and me, as we come to this table, get up. Get up. Come to the table. There's no eating in the grave. There is no appetite among the dead, only among the living. What good is it, the psalmist asks, if I go down to the grave and then declares, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth. You have removed my grief and hopelessness and have clothed me with joy that I may sing your praises forever and ever. This is the psalm that we sing as we come to the table. This is a table of death and resurrection. And what might have been no longer matters. Only what is and what will be. Get up. Take Jesus' hand and come to the table. When you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you work up quite an appetite. Get up. Amen.